So, um, let's start. In 1872, there was the first major uh, publication on research into uh, emotion in and of itself, using the actual word emotion, not passions. And it was by Charles Darwin, and he was in, interested in using his study of emotion to validate his views on evolution. And the primary point in the book was that emotions are heritable from uh, species in the evolutionary chain, that in some profound way, human emotions connect us with the rest of the species of the animal kingdom from whom we evolved. And while this point leads to certain conclusions that um, human emotions are transhistorical and they're transcultural. In other words, um, according to Darwin, you could travel around the world and people's expression of sadness, shock, surprise, anger will be remarkably similar. And this work was, by the way, validated by a guy named Paul Ekman, who did a lot of great research in the 1970s with uh, the facial expression of anger, shock, surprise, etc., and showed that across cultures people could recognize and uh, were, um, could immediately recognize from photographs people from different cultures expressing certain emotions. Now what's important is to understand that to some degree this also posits that our emotions are somewhat separable from our thought processes. Uh, to the degree that uh, Darwin did not propose that human thought is inherited from animals, that human thought is something that arises in our species, but that human emotions directly ties us to the animal kingdom. So in some way, there's already a division between thought and emotion. <coughs> now this idea bore fruition very so soon after, about uh, 20 years after the publication of Darwin's book, the great American psychologist William James was the first to really study emotional responses in humans. And the, what he found was that unlike what we would normally believe to be true, most of us would like to believe that our thoughts in some way are running the show, that our thoughts are running our mind. But in fact, what he found was that thought in the human mental arena comes about very, very late, after almost all of the important processes have already occurred. So naively, we tend to believe that if we're walking in the woods and we hear a sudden sound and we see something that looks like it might be the shape of a bear, that the events go something like this. Seeing the bear, thinking, holy shit, I'm dead, followed by the fear and then running. That's the naive belief of how human activity is organized. In fact, uh, human thought is the slowest part of the brain. The left hemisphere cognition, it takes about a full half a second to come into uh, appearance. Meanwhile, the circuits that create the emotions of fear, sadness, disgust, uh, shock, surprise, um, those emotions take a fraction 
to arise. They are there first. And emotions have to be there faster to play any role in human survival. Thought is too late in most of survival contexts to play an organizing role. So what William James proposed is that first there's the stimulus, the side of the bear, then there's the physiological arousal starting to impulse us to run, which is all unconsciously organized by survival circuits in the midbrain, followed by the subjective experience of fear. And then, much later, the thought comes up, holy crap, I'm in danger, I'm running, my heart is beating, I'm scared. So what we've just done is we've taken thought from the epicenter of human experience and we've moved it to the outside. It's a little bit similar to what Galileo and Copernicus did for us when he said that, when they said that the sun does not revolve around the earth. Because we're standing on the earth, we want to believe that the sun revolves around us. It's what appears to be true, but it's not true. Because we are thinking beings, we want to believe that thought controls all of our actions. But what William James was the first to show is that thought doesn't control very much at all. In fact, uh, as neuroscience progressed and people like Benjamin Labet and Damasio and Ledoux, etc., Ramachandran have shown, thought is so late in the causal chain of experience that its only role is at times to override our worst ideas before we fully act them out. But all of our actions, all of our impulses, they're all activated by uh, pre-conscious impulses that lie outside of cognitive control. So um, what this means is that emotions, as they follow directly arousal, Emotions base themselves on physiological arousal. So when I'm sad, it's because something has activated the feeling, the internal feeling of sadness, and then my right hemisphere has added the feeling of the emotion of sadness. And then, finally, the thought of sadness follows. So we have the feeling, which is internal, which is the activation, then we have the emotion, which is the heaviness in the mind, the overall nonverbal state of sadness. And then we have the story, the words, which are organized in the left hemisphere, which go, oh, my mind is heavy. My body's feeling uh, tired. I'm feeling little motivation. I must be sad. That's the strain of uh, causation. Now. Let's take a look at the Buddha, who uh, by this point, when all of this was finally realized, had been dead for some 2,000 years, and gets very little credit at actually stumbling across the correct chain of, uh, of uh, conscious processes. In a teaching called the Paticca Samuppada, which is known as dependent co-arising, the Buddha very clearly lays out a system that's exactly the same as what William James proposed and what is now considered to be the contemporary theory of um, how emotions and consciousness arises. The Buddha said that first there's contact. Oh, there's the side of a bear. 
That contact is called vijnana. From that contact, I have vedana, feeling. Ugh! Don't like that, gotta go. An unconscious process, pre-conscious, I'm not aware that I've seen the bear yet, but I'm having the physiological discomfort urging me to flee. Followed by the emotional state, a craving to achieve safety, a a state of discomfort at being present with a bear. And then finally, Upadana, the beginnings of um, thought. Why the hell did I go here? I'm trapped. There's a bear. I'm going to be eaten alive. I'm going to be, my corpse is going to be found alone in the dead, blah, blah, blah. All the, the chain of thinking that comes up. So once again, what we're seeing with the Buddha, as we saw in James, as we saw uh, subsequently now with Damasio and uh, Libet, is that essentially thought comes the very last part of the process. So this is already we're reaching some very important conclusions, the first of which is that um, human thought and human emotion uh, actually work largely independently. In fact, it's one of the chief reasons why we have two different frontal lobes with two almost completely unique personalities that can function very well on their own. The right hemisphere of your brain is entirely organized to maintain connection with other people, to maintain security, and it expresses its needs to you and to other people via emotions, nonverbal signals, facial expressions, tone of voice, uh, feelings in the body, all the repertoire of signaling that you have that are nonverbal. And again, your right hemisphere is timeless. It doesn't care about what's going to happen in the future. It does very much care about how well connected you are to other people, that you feel emotionally secure. It does very much care that you feel safe and at home. The concept of home is essentially important to your right hemisphere. Your right hemisphere, which creates emotions, is serotonin. It's hardwired to produce serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter which a lot of people are now receiving help to maintain in SSRIs. Serotonin drops when our interpersonal connections become uh, low. And in this country, we have tens upon tens of millions of people um, who have low serotonin as we can see from diagnostics, that are largely due to the fact that in our social lives we don't have the same level of empathetic resonant connections that we did in the past when we had village squares, when we had communities, when we lived outdoors and connected with others. So while your right hemisphere doesn't care about the future, is largely timeless, and it holds your emotional expectations about other people that started in the earliest of childhood, what Bowlby called your internal working models of how you believe other people will act. What's going on in that left hemisphere? The left hemisphere is keeping track of your goals and your plans, the things you want to achieve, and it's creating a story of your life. 
And all of the thoughts that you use to communicate with other people are largely expressions of left hemispheric concerns. The desire to have a good narrative, a good story about your life. The desire for your actions to make sense. And a lot of wonderful neuroscientists like Michael Gazaniga and Joseph Ledoux called the left hemisphere the interpreter. It interprets all of the actions and emotions that have happened before it, and it turns it into a coherent story, and it takes credit for things it didn't do. So when I'm riding on my bike to work, and I turn left or turn right, that happens before the choice. After I turn left or I turn right, then I have the story, oh, I'm going to turn left right now. I've already done it. Now you would ask maybe, how is it possible that I could take credit for something I've already done. And that's where the brain is really, really sneaky. You see, even though thought happens about a half second after action, the brain takes the stuff that's happened before it and delays letting us know about it and locks it all in sync with thinking. So we give ourselves the illusion that we're thinking and then acting. But in fact, the impulses to act have already taken occur and our emotions have already formed, and then we add the story, and then the brain realigns everything to make it seem like we thought and then we acted. It's a great optical illusion, and it gives us the feeling of control, but it also sets us up for a lifetime of behaviors that waste our time. What is one example? If you've ever tried to use thought to stop yourself from having an emotion, Good luck. Again, not only is the left hemisphere separate from the right, it actually occurs after thought. You're too late in the causal chain to try to stop the appearance of an emotion. And in fact, you can't even use thought, which is largely working on dopamine, to switch off the circuits that the right hemisphere, the right hemisphere of the brain is connected to the body and it's sending messages back and forth to the body through the vagal vagus nerve, maintaining the emotional state. The left hemisphere has no body connection. The left hemisphere is connected to the midbrain. It's this kind of this set aside uh, domain that's locked in and looks at the world through abstractions and has very little control over our emotions. So, um, already we're having a picture of the separation of emotions from logic and reason and the fact that most of our attempts to try to reason and rationalize ourselves or to be reasonable with other people when they're deeply upset and wounded will not work. In fact, when somebody is deeply grieving after a loss, and we go up to them and we say, well, they lived a long life. They got to see Paris. <laughs> Some other nonsense. Uh, because we're so uncomfortable. <laughs> we're so uncomfortable uh, being around grief. What we're really doing is in no way are we ameliorating their grief. All we're doing at best is visually sending them an emotional signal of attunement. And there, our visual expression is far more important than anything we say. The words don't reach the emotional activations. But deeply, the locking in, the facial expression, the nonverbal signals are what's meeting connection.
Right now, as I'm talking to you, your left hemispheres are struggling to keep up with all this, this neurotic tattoo guys blathering on about emotions and all that stuff. But you're also checking my body language. You're also listening to my tone of voice. You're also noting my body posture. You're noting every single signal that I'm sending off emotionally, which I have very little control over, because my emotional nonverbal signals are happening before my thinking mind. They're, they are existing, they're activated before. This is why when you try to lock eye contact with somebody for very long, it becomes uncomfortable. You ever try to do that, stare into somebody's eyes? So for the first like two or three seconds, it's okay, it's comfortable, because at that point, you're, you're trying to exert some control over muscles with your left hemisphere, your conscious mind, which will only last as long as the emotional mind lets you before it says, uh-uh, I'm not playing this game. This is making me uncomfortable. I don't know this person I'm staring at very well. I'm going to start to create a crack in the smile. I'm going to start to create nervousness. I'm going to start to create shiftiness. And all your left hemispheric desire will fail. A great example of seeing the twin hemispheres at battle is those times in life when we're caught up in a thought that we don't want to think. The right hemisphere is much stronger than the left. If you've ever had a painful breakup, if you've ever had a painful argument with a loved one, if you've ever been suddenly fired from a job, if you've ever experienced uh, seeing an ex at a party and you don't want to look at them, you want to look at everybody else at the party, you just don't want to see your ex. But your right hemisphere goes, oh no, and your brain goes, me, 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 me. What are they doing now? What's that asshole doing now? Oh, there they are. Okay, me, me, yeah. I knew I wouldn't like what they were up to. Me, me, All the left hemispheric desire to not pay attention will not work because your right cingulate, which directs your attention, is far more powerful. So emotions are largely communicative. The, the physiological impulse, which we'll call feelings, has already occurred. So it's the impulse, the motivation has already occurred, but the right, hem but the right hemisphere and the emotional expression, the facial changes, the change in tone of voice, the change in body language, the anxious tapping with fear or discomfort, uh, locked jaw with anger, uh, all of the external manifestations of emotions are communicative. They're signals. What are they signaling? Who are they signaling to? Emotions are nonverbal relation, relational messages. From the very moment we're born as children, we spend the first three or four years of our life communicating and establishing secure connection or what in psychology is called attachment to a caretaker. Infants need to survive, and the way they survive is by attaching to parents and caretakers. If the, if the caretaker is secure, um, the caretaker will attune to the infant, and when the infant is sad, the parent will go, oh, you're sad, and then smile, and that's called marking. The caretaker is saying, I see you're sad. I'm mirroring back to let you know that it's okay to be sad. I'm labeling your emotional state as sadness, but I'm not sad. 
to reassure the infant that the mother is still okay. That interactive process of seeking, the infant seeking to let the parent know what state it's in, the parent seeing the emotion, mirroring it, and labeling it, is the key to all human emotion integration. Without that crucial bit of mirroring, mentalizing according to Peter von Hage, we will live lives filled with addiction and despair because all of our emotions will be unknowable activations that we won't be able to understand and we won't feel confident in expressing to other people. So once again, the key to early bonding with others, all of it is maintained by emotions, not by language. It's not until three or four that, you, even though language is present before then, but really still children communicate and establish the secure bonds in the first four years of their life, which is when almost all of your right hemisphere is formed by experience, all your internal working models of what you believe other people will, how they will behave, your entire maps of the world around you are being set in those exchanges. And from then on, as you move on to working with your left hemisphere and developing language skills and goals and stuff like that, your right hemisphere, which used to be the most conscious part of your brain, now consciousness migrates from the right to the left hemisphere to organize language and to help you interact with other people through language. And your right hemisphere, which used to connect with other people emotionally, is now pushed behind the scenes. It becomes pre-conscious. We're unaware of it largely. As you sit and have conversations with a best friend, with a therapist, with a son or a daughter, you're aware of their language, but you're less aware of what their body is signaling to you, what their emotions are signaling to you. It's only when you push against that sort of default habit and become emotionally aware by paying attention to your body and the body of other people that you return some of that emotional process back into the communication process. So what happens when parents or friends cannot mirror our emotions? When those messages saying, I'm scared. When a child, for instance, uh, is uncomfortable because it's wetted itself or it's hungry or because it's frightened and the parent, because of life stresses, is incapable of seeing, attuning to, paying attention, understanding the child's emotion. At that point, non-mirrored emotions are, are situations which cause distraught by the child. The child is so dependent upon connection with the parent, and if it expresses a state of being that the parent cannot tolerate or mirror back, the child is forced to learn how to change its emotional state on its own. In so doing, it's learning to repress its natural, authentic emotion and exchange it eventually for an emotion that's tolerable by the parent. This is the incipient uh, domain of emotion repression, which goes on for much of the adult life. The more parents have, have due to their own childhoods, their own upbringings, emotions that they feel uncomfortable being around, the more they will disregard those emotions in their own children. I worked with a woman who had um, a partner and they had a, a, a new child 
And um, we, never, we hadn't talked too much about him. We just started the work. And suddenly, when his child turned one, uh, he couldn't look at his own son. And he fled the family. He broke off the, the partnership and left, disappeared. And without any doubt in my mind, I knew that this was the exact same thing that had happened to him as a child at the exact same age. People keep that degree of specificity in their internal working models. If they're trained by parents that uh, anger is dangerous, sadness is not to be allowed, frustration cannot be born safely in family systems, they will repeat that in their own lives. Because throughout the entirety of our lives, we learn to repress those emotions that our parents and peers wouldn't allow us. When I grew up in the 1960s, I was, you know, it was a very homophobic era, and any, any actions that came from a guy that looked even remotely feminine, you'd get your ass kicked. And so very soon, all of us young boys learned to, in schoolyards, try to portray ourselves as this macho and sports-like, even though I hated sports. And we learned to care about things that... I try to care about cars. I don't care about cars. I don't know anything from cars. I look When guys look at car engines together, I'm like, what are they doing? There's no genetic component in my entire body that understands why a car is interesting. You know, it either runs or it doesn't. But all these other guys would stand around looking at an engine like they were they had dissected a human being and were trying to to have a heart operation on it. It had that degree of interest to them. So um, we perform. We do performative things to present our emotional lives in such a way that people will accept us and mirror us. We'll do anything to get secure attachment. Very quickly, as I move on, I want to note that you'll hear a lot of teachers use the word attachment negatively. I never do. In psychology, attachment is the attachment meaning between a child and a caretaker is a very important thing to achieve. And without attachment, without secure interpersonal attachment in our lives, we cannot organize anything approaching sanity in our lives. So we are all attachment-seeking beings in the terms of we are all seeking people to connect with. And the Buddha himself said this in the Mita Sutta. He said, you can't get anywhere in the path unless you have secure friendships who are there when you need them, emotionally empathetic, available, who won't drop you when you're in need. So I use the word clinging when we're talking about things that we're trying to latch onto to solve our, to get rid of our distress, things that we uh, hoard and try to control and cling to me, that's negative. Attachment for me, I use as positive, and I'll never throughout this weekend use the word attachment in any pejorative way. And I think it's actually quite a shame that Buddhism in the West decided to use attachment in a negative way because in psychology, um, throughout all of psychoanalytic literature, it's a positive term. Um, the more we accumulate emotions that other people around us and parents can't tolerate, impulses, behaviors, we learn to repress. 
Some of the ways we repress are through reaction formation. We present the emotion that our parents want to see. My dad was a very macho, drunk Russian guy who loved avant-garde jazz, getting into fights and bars, and loved tough guys. And he loved it when I would pretend to be tough, which for me is excruciating. I don't have very much toughness in me, but I tried. And um, so that's reaction formation. Many of us, to repress emotions, will stay busy and overscheduled or try to achieve things to get their parents' secure attention. Perhaps, according to Winnicott, the most significant way that we repress natural, authentic emotions that other people have told us are not okay is through what he called the false self, which is intellectualization and thinking. Fantasy, planning, thinking about self, getting lost in thought, cognition is a form of the way the false self protects us from feeling the body where all those difficult emotions are first known. So, for instance, if I grow up in a family where sadness is not allowed, the moment I start to feel that sadness rise up in my chest, that hollowness, I will go up into thought and think something that will, in other words, uh, repress suppress the acknowledgement of sadness, I will self-numb my body. And then I'll go into fantasy and then, in my case, start to read comic books obsessively when I was six or seven and then start to watch television obsessively to live in a fantasy world. And then eventually I'll take drugs and alcohol, anything so that when those emotions that I were trained lead to disconnection and abandonment start to arise, I will do anything to repress that. I will do anything to stay in this disconnected, disembodied, somatically unaware state of la-la land. I want to live here in the left hemisphere, which is not connected to the body, which doesn't feel all those emotional activations, which remind me of abandonment and vulnerability. So the summary here is, when emotions lead to disconnection, we repress them by any means possible, especially thought, rationalization, fantasy. Interestingly enough, the left hemisphere, the, what is sometimes called the interpreter, will so desperately try to not allow us to feel feelings in the body, it will use catastrophizing really dark stories to pull our attention away from the body. For example, we've just gone through a breakup. We feel lonely and disappointed. And how does the left hemisphere ride to our rescue? By telling us, you'll be okay. You'll meet somebody else. There are other fish in the sea. No. The left hemisphere just wants your attention. It doesn't care how. It will say to you in the most loving, caring voice, it's all right. No one will ever love you. No one will ever be there for you. No one really wants you. You just have to learn to be alone. This is good. This is good, really. This is where you're heading. You might as well just go for that bag of Oreos right now. There's no point. Why did you think there was a point? And really all it's saying is, I don't want you to feel 
I don't want you to stay with the right hemisphere in any body awareness. I want you to stay up here with me where we don't feel a thing. We just tell stories and stories and we predict the future and how bad it's going to be. And we'll take a warm bath of pity and sadness together here. When somebody does something to you that's unacceptable, do we go up to them and say, hey, that's unacceptable? No, most of the time we go up into there. I don't want to feel that anger, so I'm going to tell all the stories about it, what shithead that person is, how they don't deserve to live, and I'll visualize all the things I'll tell them that I actually won't ever get around to. <laughs> I'll create the story. The interpreter loves having your attention, and it doesn't want you to be present. It doesn't want you to feel what's around you. It doesn't want you to be awake. It wants you to be stuck in a cloud of thoughts, completely disembodied. Let's hear a little bit from the Buddha. In the Dhammapada 259, the Buddha says, talking and thinking a lot doesn't develop any true wisdom. Even if one doesn't ever hear the Dharma, experiencing feelings in the body provides all the wisdom that is needed. Let's hear the Buddha in the Kappa Sutta. Unaware of the body, one is limited by impulses, caught in the net of latent tendencies of pride, ignorance, lust, and anger. Liberation is blocked when we are in thought. All ignorance is based on thinking. They didn't know. So, I mean, sorry, vitaka. Uh, vitaka is the word for thinking. So, let's move on to, uh, we're soon going to be nearing the point where we actually get to some of the meditative practices. The question is, though, how do we ultimately heal when we've had a series of repressed emotions and impulses that lead us to a place where we are largely avoiding, uh, that we are uh, constantly falling into thought, that, um, well, it starts to compromise all of our interpersonal relationships because when we have a set of emotions and impulses that we find intolerable, people who activate those emotions, we will have to avoid. And we'll use what's called avoidance coping. So if somebody at work reminds me of the small, frightened child that my dad used to beat up on, and I've successfully re repressed all of that small timidity in me, and then I see someone acting out on the very impulses to survive I've had to repress and not show anyone, I won't like them. It doesn't mean they're unlikable, but I don't like, nor does anybody like, people who act out on impulses that we have been trained to repress. This is why so many uh, men who grow up in homophobic cultures and desperately repress their homosexuality and present as macho men hate gay men because they're acting out on the impulses that they've desperately repressed for much of their life. It's called projection, by the way, if you want to read more about it. So what we will do in the places of projection and when we are activated uncomfortably by seeing people who activate the emotions we repress is we will avoid. We will seek addictions to get rid of the emotions that we don't like. There's a wonderful book by a great psychologist named Flores called Emotion as a Addictions as Attachment uh, Disruption. It's all about 
uh, how all addictions are essentially an attempt to uh, manage emotions that we don't know how to safely express to other people or feel in our body. So substances and substance abuse are just a, an attempt, a poor attempt at emotion regulation. The only way human beings really regulate emotions, the only way we heal emotions, and there is only one way. In meditation, we can create a safe container where we can recreate, reconnect with and feel our feelings, but the healing of emotion is always relational. There is no way in isolation to heal an emotion. I know that we all have seen the image of the lone Buddha sitting up in a cave somewhere. Maybe they're in Thailand. Maybe they're in the Himalayas. Maybe they're in Japan. Maybe they're somewhere, but we have this image of the lone monk, and we like to think that that lone monk has achieved inner peace because he hasn't had to deal with other people. And that's extremely not the case. Most monks spend a huge amount of their lives, I know because I've been their attendant, with other people. And even when they do long retreats, they immediately come back and they download their experience and talk with other people about it. The being able alone to be with one's emotions creates a safe container where we can reconnect with emotions, but it doesn't heal a thing. What heals emotional wounds, which always start in our relational experience with others, all of our emotional wounds stem from abandonments, rejections, shame, ostracization, and the only thing that heals is the vulnerable disclosure of those emotions to another empathetic, attuned human being who listens, and in our most vulnerable moment of expressing our emotions, hears, and rather than says anything, rather than tells us what to do, locks in, maintains eye contact, sends a mirroring body language that says back to us, I get it. I know what it feels like to be overwhelmed. I know what it feels like to have responsibilities and want to run from them. I know what it feels like to be with somebody you love and still be really angry with them and just want to yell and scream. I know what it feels like to want to just quit and give up. I know what it feels like to, be, uh, to have no motivation and just want to lie in bed all day. It's in those moments when we get extremely vulnerable and we express the very activations the very states of being that we have been told for so long in our schools, in our jobs, in our family systems are not okay. And especially capitalism is the worst of it all. Because what does capitalism say? But you have to be self-sufficient and you have to go to work every day and when people ask you, how are you doing? What do you have to say? You have to say, fine. <laughs> And you have to keep doing that for 30 years until you get a 401k, and then you have to politely go somewhere. And then, mythically, according to that idea, when you, you, know, when you retire, everything will be great. Because, of course, after 60 years of emotion repression and lack of disclosure, everybody's okay. Why is it a surprise that within five years of retirement, virtually everybody's dead? Have you ever looked at the statistics? Because we let go 
of the one thing that is providing any even remote form of attachment. There's a wonderful book by a Susan Piver called The Village Effect. There's another book by Matthew Lieberman, the neurobiologist called Social. There's an entire new field of showing how important interpersonal connections are to the social brain and that our emotions are nothing other than litmus tests telling us how well emotionally connected we are with other people. When I feel joy, I feel joy because I feel emotionally connected with you. When I feel angry, I feel angry because I feel you've uh, trespassed on a boundary or you're doing something that's threatening a relationship that's important to me. When I feel sad, it's because I've lost an attachment that's important. When I feel frustrated, it's because I can't communicate well with somebody else that I want to build a relationship with. All human emotions are thermostats letting us know how well connected we are. And they express their readings through nonverbal activations. Let's listen to, so again, we repair these damages and we restore emotional health through proximity, which is staying close with someone, attunement, which is when somebody pays attention and listens, through sympathy, when somebody actually stops with their own internal chatter and hears what we're communicating, and empathy, when they actually start to feel themselves the emotion that I'm talking about. So it's not just the sympathy of the left hemisphere, but emotional understanding in the right. When this entire process has occurred, the internal working map stored in my right hemisphere that says that other people are not safe, other people will not tolerate my sadness. Whenever I feel sad, I have to make it go away. Whenever I feel grief, I can't show it. When I attain this degree of empathy in connection with another human being, that emotional model starts to chip away. And a new emotional model in the right hemisphere begins to be written that says other people are safe. There are some people in the world that I can express my true, authentic impulses towards. Let's check in with the Buddha. Sigalavada Sutta. A real friend provides shelter, keeps your secrets safe, is helpful when you're happy, and is helpful when you're in difficult circumstances, who gives good counsel and sympathizes with suffering. The path cannot be accomplished without a good friend. So this idea, the spiritual bypass idea of I don't want to have to have community, I just, just give me the meditation, tell me what to do, thank you very much, doesn't work. Rahula, any secret thought or inclination that causes suffering, he's talking, the Buddha's talking to his son, Rahula, any secret thought or inclination that causes suffering should be confessed, revealed to a teacher or to a wise spiritual friend. Only then will it be released. So the Buddha's not saying your thoughts and your impulses are released when you decide not to do it. He says it's released when you confess and talk about it with someone. The Mita Sutta, a true friend does what is hard to do, forgives our ill-spoken words, tells you their secrets um, while honoring yours, and when misfortune strikes, a true friend doesn't abandon you. So, okay... Now we're moving on towards where I'm going to talk about some actual practices, which we're going to do. Um, there's 
two principal practices that I use um, for regulating emotions. Regulating especially painful emotions that many people have been, have learned to repress. Of course, there's the tool of mindfulness. Mindfulness is uh, uh, the English translation of the Buddha's word sati. And in the Satipatthana, the Buddha very clearly lays out that the practice of mindfulness involves breaking down every experience into four components in a very specific order. Whatever you're feeling, whatever situation you're in in life, become aware first of the breath and the body state you're in. Once you become fully familiar without any judgment, without any sense of shame or any sense of this is wrong, just open and observe the, how you're breathing and how your body is. The next stage is to understand what feelings or activations are present. When we want to run, we can feel that impulse in our arms and legs. When we're angry, we can feel that tightness in our jaw. The emotional expression of impulses in the body. At the very basic, the Buddha says with Vedana, it boils down to, as Trungpa said, like, dislike, or don't care. They're all basic physiological actions saying, I don't like what's going on, I want to get away from this. I do like what's going on, I want more of this. Or I don't care very much, so I'm just going to think about myself. That's true, actually. Studies show that when people are not in positive or negative emotions, they tend to drift off into daydreaming about themselves. It's called default mode network. So, all, then the next stage is to note what's called shita, the emotional mind, the moods. The moods express themselves not in words, but in our attention. Where does the mind want to pull our attention? How spacious and open is the mind? Is the mind very available? Does it hear a lot of different sounds? Is it in contact with the fullness of experience? Or has it shrunk, what the Buddha calls tamiyata, to this tiny little fixated focus on my ex who's walking around and I'm just going to follow everything that they do? When the mind is experiencing anger, the mind starts to speed up and lots of ideas and things pass through it. When the mind is depressed, it slows down. Why should I even bother doing anything? So that's the nonverbal chitta. And then finally, the last area of the, the last of the four is um, thoughts or dhammas, what thoughts are present. We always start with the body and the breath, no matter what. That pulls awareness away from the activating thoughts, makes you familiar with how your body is, what your body is expressing, how the, how the, the midbrain is reacting through the thought. Then the next awareness is the vagal vagus nerve, the front of the body. Is my stomach tight? Is my, my chest tight? Is my shoulders locked? Is my jaw locked? The third is just notice the switching levels of, atten of, of attention, the mood we're in. And the fourth is just note what kind of thoughts are present. In general, there are two kinds of unskillful thoughts that people add, uh, or really three, I should say, that always indicate needless suffering. The first is, this is all about me. We talked about this last night. Taking any experience and saying, this is all about me. I'm the one who's 
lost his mother and his father in short succession. I'm the one who has all these pressures. I'm the one with this financial insecurity. I'm the one with all these obligations. I'm the one with the family who doesn't understand me. I'm the one with the blah, 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 blah. The Buddha in the Kisagatami stories always treats people who live in uniqueness by encouraging them to, as Trungpa said last night, to connect with how much suffering there is going on in the world. That addresses the distorting thought that it's all about me. But we still, even though we're addressing the distorting thought, we still have to feel the feeling. Becoming aware that the self-indulgent quality of emotions we can alleviate doesn't mean that's all there is. If I'm suffering because I've lost my job, and then I familiarize myself with, oh, tens of millions of people have lost their job every year, that's not enough, that's just an idea. I need to actually feel the disappointment in the body, in moods. So the first three foundations are always absolutely necessary to experience. It's important for me to experience the pure emotion in and of itself. I cannot bypass that. And then I address the distorting thoughts through skillful reflections, once I've felt the feeling. So when we are sad, we feel the tightness in the chest, the, the thinness in the breath, the heaviness in the mind. And then, once we've connected and we've created a safe container, and we even nurture it, we say, welcome, this is okay, you're allowed. We welcome the feeling, we don't push it away. And we nurture it, we say, it's okay to be sad, it's okay to feel this way, I'm not going to abandon you like so many in the past have done. You're safe with me. And then the thoughts that come up and say, it's not okay to be sad, this is terrible. People don't like you when you say it. I don't know what this weird new thing you're doing is all about, this saying it's okay to be sad. Don't, don't, don't believe that. Sadness is, nobody likes to see that. Nobody's ever wanted to see my sadness. <laughs> Thank you very much. I hear you. You're allowed to be there. But I'm going to stay here with the, the body, the breath, the feelings, the emotion of sadness. And then another, another cognitive distortion besides the uniqueness one is this is going to last forever. That's what keeps us the most frightened of our emotions. The idea, if I let this in, my anger, if I, let, if I get in touch with my anger, if I get in touch with my anger, let me tell you, you don't want to know. People will hear about it all up the eastern seaboard. Believe me, you don't want to know what's going on with my buddy. So that's the eternal thing. The Buddha again says we have to show it in permanence. Everything arises and passes. That's why we maintain body awareness through the day. By the time we get to really connecting with painful emotions, we know that they won't last. We know that they arise. We know that they pass. We won't be frightened of being flooded. The more we pay attention to the body throughout our lives, the more we see that every state is impermanent. And so the, all the verbiage, this is going to last, you're never going to get rid of me. You open that door, I come up. Your anger, you're never going to get rid of me. You know, it's all right. I'm going to let it up. 
I'm going to let it up, and I'm going to feel it. In some of our practices, we call this RAIN. Recognize, allow, investigate, and then nurture. Nurture. So recognize what's present. Allow it. Don't push it away. Don't repress it. Investigate how it feels in the breath, the body, the emotional mind, and then nurture it. Instead of the stories we say that this is bad, people won't love us, words of kindness. So, um, I guess what I'm going to have to do, given the amount of time, is I'm just going to briefly go and describe the second meditation, and I'm going to join them together in our practice. The second meditation is called Yonisa Manasikara. If mindfulness is what allows us to get, to create a safe container for emotions, mindfulness and rain, it says, come up, be here. You can use mindfulness in any given situation and undo, or at least uh, begin to mitigate a strong impulse. A famous story with Ajahn Sumedho, a woman tells him that every day before work she has to eat a donut. She can't not go to work where she feels powerless, she doesn't like her job. To have enough energy to survive the job, she has to eat a donut. And she tells Sumedho, I think I found the perfect way not to eat the donut. I just walk a different way to work so I don't have to pass that damn donut store. And Sumedho says, well, that's not really the way we do it here. He says, I want you to go in front of the donut store, stand there, and then turn your awareness into your body as you stand before the donuts and feel. How does your breath feel when you want a donut? What happens in your belly and in your chest and in your throat, up and down the feeling zones of the Vedana? Tell me what kind of mind state are you in when you want a donut? Does your mind jump about? He said, yeah, I'm looking at the different donuts. <laughs> and then he said, what kind of thoughts do you have finally? Why can't I have a donut? So that's, that's the mindfulness process. But there's another process the Buddha started talking about towards the end of his life. Yoniso manasikara, appropriate attention. And the Buddha... I think stumbled upon something that is a profound genius here. He suggests that not only being with emotions is important, but learning to understand what creates our emotions is important to understand, so that we can go about meeting their needs in a different way. Let me read you the sutta, one of the suttas. He actually says this phrase about a hundred times in the teachings. He mentions it over and over and over again. When the uninstructed person experiences a negative emotion, they crave sensual pleasure. Why? They don't understand that there's any other way to respond to, this, to uncomfortable emotions other than to resist it, i.e. repress it, or to crave pleasure, to make it go away through distractions. They fail to see that understanding can be achieved. Every Experience has an allure, an asada, a drawback, an adinava, and an escape, a nisarana. So, all emotions, all impulses have an allure, something that there's a purpose they're serving, a drawback, something we don't like about them, and an escape, a way we can meet those underlying needs without having to acting out, a replacement strategy.
Let me give you an example. Somebody who worries a lot. Chronic worrier. They feel safer and more prepared when they worry. The allure is that they feel safer and prepared by catastrophizing. What's the drawback? Well, the drawback of worry is, of course, that you never stop thinking about bad shit that's going to happen. What's the solution? Well, realizing that the allure is the need to feel safe, the need to feel prepared, the solution is to find another way to make somebody feel prepared, but without the drawback of obsessive thinking. So how do we do that? Well, when we're going into something scary, we reflect and hold in our mind all the people who care about us and will still be there, even if something doesn't work out. Or we hold in our mind and reflect all the times we've done something new in the past that we weren't prepared for and still we survived. We're addressing the underlying need for preparation and security, but we're not doing it the way we normally do through worry. The key with this process is understanding the underlying emotional the underlying emotional belief that creates our impulses and our emotions. Let me give you an example of some. Binge eating. People who come home at night after work and sit themselves before the television and they are, um, they do suddenly crave to eat a bag of cookies. Why do they do that? Well, if you ask them, they say the allure is it makes me feel good. The bad part of it is that I feel guilty and ashamed that I'm so weak and that I, I binge ate. But what is the underlying emotional belief that makes us binge eat? Well, when we binge eat, what we're doing is we're creating the feeling that there's somebody else in our life that cares for us and is providing care by giving us food and nurturing us. And the act of eating reminds us of those times in childhood when our parents said, it's okay, it's going to be all right, and here, have something you'd like to eat. So what we're doing unconsciously is we're creating that feeling that there's somebody around that cares about us. So the way to address binge eating then is to create the feeling of other people being present. Then we won't have to act out. This is why people around the world in OA tackle binge eating by connecting with other people who make them feel loved and secure. Why people who do other practices of journaling, expressing the painful emotions, calling up friends when they have binge impulses, begin to retrain the mind. Rather than needing to create the feeling of presence through eating, they create the feeling of presence through connecting with people. Another example is uh, some people get really anxious after they get good news. They, uh, they get good news and they feel, uh-oh, the other shoe's going to drop, something bad's going to happen. This is because at some point in childhood when they relaxed and felt close to their caretakers, invariably then something bad would happen and they were trained never to drop their guard that whenever you feel most close and most relaxed, that's when the bad <laughs> stuff happens. So we need to understand that underlying emotional belief and address it directly. Remind ourselves of all the times in life we've gotten good news and no bad news has followed. This is not a thought process, it's visualizing. 
So I could go on and on because I've accumulated many, many years of examples of underlying emotional beliefs, but let's spend the rest of our time actually doing some of these processes. So let's close our eyes. and find a comfortable seated position. And in general, I like to just keep my head in line with my hips and keep the, the neck in line with the shoulders in line with the hips. And one way I keep from slouching is I just tip my head a little bit back, like I'm looking at a tall building. But there's no right or wrong position. Every body is different. And find what for you is a comfortable seated position. And in our practice, we close the eyes. If you have a practice where you keep your eyes open, that's fine. Just look at the ground in front of you. The idea is we don't want you to have your attention be pulled outside of the body. So let's take a few breaths together just to relax the body. So a long, smooth in-breath through the nose, and while you do that, pull your shoulders up like you're trying to touch your ears, and hold them up there, and then as you breathe out through the mouth, drop the shoulders as heavily as they can, and if it feels appropriate for you, gently pull your shoulders back to open up the chest, create a lot of space for the breath. And then for the second breath, what I'd like you to do is to uh, pull in the belly as tight as you can. Just hold your belly in tight, 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 tight. And then breathe out through the mouth. Soften the belly. And then for the third breath, tighten the muscles in the face. Squinch the muscles in the face. Squinch them up real good. And then breathe out and soften. So settling into the body and let the breath come to a natural pace. And then what I'd like you to do is bring to mind a time not too upsetting, not too traumatic, but some interpersonal event or some disappointing experience of late that you're still grappling with or you still don't feel settled. A conversation with someone that was tense, a conflict, a time that you felt somebody didn't really see you or hear you, a time when a loved one didn't act in a caring way. Again, all emotions have their bearings in relational events. So I like to really encourage thinking of an experience where you felt wounded by someone or a group of people, the gathering you weren't included, a time a friend promised to do something and didn't show up for it. 
And I'd like you, rather than to go into the story, which your left hemisphere, the interpreter, will want to do, I just want you to hold the most painful image of that you can, the most resonant. The, the argument with your partner or lover or father or daughter or brother or boss or friend. And just hold some image, maybe something that they were doing, not looking at you. An activating image. And then I want you to even further activate the emotion by asking, how does it feel? We don't want a story, we just want the emotional body to respond. How does it feel to be not loved, to be not cared for? to be wounded, to be... How does it feel to have somebody not return our call? How does it feel to be not seen? And see if you can feel anything in the body, any clenching, any tightness, any discomfort, and I want you to make a safe container for it. I don't want you to push it away. I want you to welcome it. Feel it in the breath. Feel it in the body. And just allow it. Connect with that emotion. It's okay. No matter what anybody has told you, no matter what you've experienced in your past, this emotion is okay. There's nothing you can feel that's not okay. And just tell this feeling, it's okay, I won't abandon you. Whenever you need my attention, I'll be there for you. I'll learn to connect with you. You're allowed. Spending time with the feeling not with the thought, but with the feelings. Being with the authentic, true expression of sadness or anger or disappointment. This is how we begin the process of healing that finds its fruition when we speak with others. Now with the time we have left, let's do a little bit of the second practice. I'd like you to put down the image of the person or the incident that wounds you, and I'd like to, you to bring up a time when you're alone and there's some impulse that you struggle with. A time when you feel like 
shopping even though you don't need to buy anything online, when you feel the need to binge eat when you don't, you've already eaten enough, a time when you need to uh, act out sexually in any way that you act out, any impulse that you struggle with. A time you want to call up an ex even though you know it won't lead to happiness. All of those impulses that are there to express true underlying states of being that are seeking attention. So just visualize yourself. For example, being alone on a night where you wish there were people around being with a laptop or TV, nothing interesting to look at, and then suddenly the impulse to eat or shop or do something that you don't really want to do, but part of you creates that impulse. And instead of disliking this impulse, just ask yourself, okay, if I couldn't follow through, if I could never eat those Oreos, if I could never shop on Amazon, if I could never post on Facebook, if I could never do whatever impulse it is, emotional behavior that I find uh, intrusive, if I could never do it, what would I feel? What would be felt? Now, at first, you might feel something positive. Oh, it would be great. I'd be free of that need to eat all the time, have compulsive sex or compulsive shopping or gambling or worrying. I wouldn't have to worry anymore. But if we're really honest with ourselves, if we ask what it would be like to be without our addictions and our impulses, we'll find that really they're there to prevent us from feeling something painful. That if I couldn't eat those Oreos, I'd feel alone. If I couldn't shop, I'd feel powerless. I'd feel like I didn't exist. If I couldn't connect with that person, call up on the phone, the person who always mistreats me, but I still I call them up, I'd have to give up and realize that I don't have that connection which I want. There's always something there that I really, really don't want to feel. And so I have these impulses to protect myself from them. And if you can feel some of that, you can nurture that too. Nurture the feeling you don't want to feel and show it. You can be with it. The more we can directly address the emotional woundings beneath our impulses, the impulse of loneliness that motivates shopping, the more we can connect with the wound beneath the more the impulse begins to dissipate. And we can just be with a true, authentic being. 
For the last few minutes, just bring to mind any impulses or painful memories and just let them stay there and investigate what are the feelings associated with that we normally don't want to feel, that we normally repress with thoughts and distractions and busyness. And just create a safe space, feeling the breath. Feeling them in the body. Feeling them in the mind. It's okay. You're welcome. Welcome everything. Nothing is not welcome. Thank <clears throat> you. 